0: An investor's investor.
1: Weird.
0: Always thinking.
1: Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukomnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people, from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, it's our pleasure to welcome our guest, Michael Abramowitz, President of Freedom House. Freedom House is a pro-democracy, pro-human rights, non-governmental organization with a long and proud history. Freedom House was founded in 1941 to counter American isolationists who wanted the U.S. to stay on the sidelines of World War II and the fight against fascism. Mike joined as president in 2017 after serving as director of the U.S. Holocaust Museum's education efforts and after nearly 25 years at the Washington Post, including a stint as its White House correspondent. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the National Security Archive. He is a former Marshall Memorial Fellow and a former Media Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Welcome, Mike. Great
0: to be here, John.
1: So we have found in doing these that interesting people often have interesting lives. And yours seems to have started at birth. I mean, you were born in Hong Kong to a prominent foreign service family. So what's your origin story? How'd you come to be the person you are today?
0: That's a funny question. You know, I was born in Hong Kong, although I would say I probably can't go back to Hong Kong anytime soon because I've been sanctioned by the Chinese government, which we can talk about at some point. But, uh, yeah, my, my parents, uh, were foreign service people. My dad was in the state department for 30 years and my mom actually spent a lot of her life devoted to humanitarian causes, including working for the international rescue committee as the head of their Washington office. And so I was Basically, born into a family that was committed to public service, and my parents, you know, are quite are deeply inspiring to me. Actually, when we were in Hong Kong, it was sort of the start of my dad's foreign service career. He had actually been in Taiwan uh, for four years, and then came to Hong Kong in the early '60s, where I was born. Uh, and I have, a, I have a younger sister too, who was born in Hong Kong. And you know, at the time, China was closed essentially to uh, Westerners, including the United States. And so Taiwan and Hong Kong were kind of listening posts. And so I grew up in a family that was deeply interested in foreign policy and foreign affairs in Asia, although my dad went on to do other things. And so, uh, but I, I think what I'm particularly inspired by my parents is that they were people who really wanted to do things, not necessarily be things, which is sometimes of a a rare thing in Washington and New York. Uh, They, you know, always, they tried to get things done in whatever they did. And so I'm inspired by that. And I try to model that behavior, although probably not with the success that they had.
1: Let's just go quickly through some of the previous positions before we get to Freedom House. You had a long career at the Washington Post, perhaps most publicly as the White House correspondent. Now, when you took over that post, which is I guess, arguably the highest profile reporting position at the post. You had been an editor for nine years. I don't think you would reported a story in nine years. So on the one hand, was there rust? Did you say, you know, I haven't done this for a while or on the other hand, was it, well, there's a little perspective here that I might not have had if I read the daily grind and maybe I could apply that perspective in a way that hasn't been used before.
0: Well, I, I found that being a writer, being a reporter is a little bit like riding a bike. You know, I'd been a journalist really since I was, well, I was on the high school paper. I was, uh, uh, the president of the Harvard Crimson, uh, where I went to undergraduate. And then I started off as a summer intern at the post and never left for 25 years. Uh, so I had, it's interesting. It's a, it's a great question. And I would definitely say that maybe for a couple of weeks, it was a little bit, you know, getting used to to writing again, but it's, it's really, you you pick it up pretty quickly. And I do think that I was a better reporter for having been an editor. I mean, I kind of went back and forth. I started life as a, as a reporter, then I went to being an editor. Then went back to being a reporter and you, you know, editors, you know, the best editors kind of see the holes in stories. They see how things can be organized better. They can see what's missing. And so when you're an editor, that's what you're thinking about all the time. And then you kind of, in some ways anticipate some of the questions that an editor might have when you're writing. So I definitely think I was a better reporter for having been an editor. What made you decide to leave the
1: post and go to the Holocaust Museum?
0: You know, it was the best decision I ever made. And it's not because I disliked the post. I loved the post deeply. And uh, many of my best friends in life came from the post. I had a wonderful 25 years there. I did great work. uh, You know, life is kind of serendipitous. I was in my mid forties and I was sort of thinking about like the, the second half of my career, if you will. And, uh, I, I began to think, well, you know, is there something different that I might do? Uh, you know, the post, if you recall at the time, uh, was having some problems. I wouldn't say huge, but there was definitely a round of a series of, uh, uh, they never did layoffs, but they, but they did do buyouts until Jeff Bezos took over the post and I revere the grams. I think they are incredible people, but Bezos has, you know, injected the post with a huge amount of uh, resources that didn't exist when I was there. So a lot of things happened that made me think, hmm, I, uh, uh I might do something. Should I do something different? And I spent, you know, a year maybe kind of quietly Asking people, hey, what do you, you, know, what, what do you think I could do? Is there something else that, would, that my skills would fit? I've been doing a lot of reporting about President Bush's, he was a president at the time, about President Bush's policy towards Sudan, which kind of fascinated me. Uh, it wasn't something that got a lot of attention, but President Bush was very interested in the mass killing that had happened in Sudan and in Darfur, in South Sudan, and, and tried some efforts to try to put greater U.S. attention to that issue. And I wrote about that in the course of doing that. I met someone who had worked at the Holocaust Museum on these issues, and he and he was leaving uh, the job, which was running the program on genocide, con- contemporary genocide at the, at the at the museum. Then called the Committee on Conscience, and I had a coffee with him. I said, "Hey, this job sounds kind of interesting. Uh, you know, what's it about?" And he introduced me to the folks at the museum, and I I think I hit it off with the the people there. They actually didn't hire me right away. They went through a formal search process and I thought that they had lo- had lost interest actually, but about six or seven months later, they called me, the search firm, hey, are you still interested in this? And, and that led to me leaving the post.
1: Now you started that answer by saying it was the best decision you ever made. And I assume there are usually two sides to that. One is there were um, financial stresses at the post, but what's the, you know, was just, and you said just leaving the post wasn't, the part of the best decision because you love the post. So there must be an upside to where you went. Why was it, why was that the best decision?
0: Because so many journalists, I mean, I'm just be very crass about this. I I think so many journalists who are in their forties and fifties, you know, have, have great skills, uh, they might want to be thinking about someone else, something else, but they're kind of stuck in a way in, and I wasn't stuck. I got to basically have a completely different second career. Uh, you know, the, the museum is an amazing place and we could talk more about that. I, I learned so much at the museum about human nature, about running things. And that led to me being at Freedom House, which is one of the greatest jobs in the world too. So I would never be running one of the world's preeminent human rights organizations if I had you know, not been kind of thoughtful and creative about how to approach my life.
1: So let's talk about the museum for a second. Visitors to the Holocaust Museum, often sort of re- react to an individual exhibit or an item, it evokes an emotional reaction um, and they don't expect it. Did that ever happen to you? Or did the fact that it was a job, an important job, mean that
0: you needed to be unemotional as you went through the museum? No, you, you have to be very emotional, I think. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a human phenomenon. And I think I do think it's, it's, you, you kind of have to have internal processes to steal yourself if you weigh, because it's, it's, it's pretty deep uh, and, 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 and challenging uh, to deal with that kind of content, even traumatic, I think, uh, to some people. Uh, so I, I never try to run away from my emotions there, but the thing about the museum that I think to me is the most significant, and when I gave tours of, of the museum you know, to journalists or VIPs or other people that I would occasionally give tours to. I would always emphasize the first part of the museum. The museum, if you know, kind of goes uh, in chronological order, but but in descending order. So the, the fourth floor is the first part of the Nazi rule. Then the second floor uh, is the, uh, you know, the, the final solution. The third floor is kind of post. And I always found the most interesting and important it's all important, but to me, the first part of the of the exhibition, which really tells the story of how the most advanced democratic society in the world at the time was, uh, one that became capable of genocide within six years. And that's a very cautionary tale. And so that story of the adoption of the Nuremberg laws, how the, uh, uh, the, the, the Nazi, I'm sorry, that the German institutions like the judiciary, like the police were kind of co-opted by the Nazis. That's a very powerful story. It's still relevant to this day.
1: Let's move on to Freedom House for a second. Freedom House, as I said, was founded in 1941, and there's obviously a link. It was founded to combat isolationism and to push the U.S. to oppose Nazism and fascism. Um it was founded by a number of Legendary people for lack of a better word. The most interesting to me, just incidentally as a mystery fan is Rex Stout, who is the creator of the fictional detective, Nero Wolf, but probably the most famous are the two political icons, one democratic and one Republican, Eleanor Roosevelt and Wendell Wilkie. But they're icons of the early, I'd say even the early to mid 20th century. And today we're entering the early to mid 21st century. There are very few political institutions that stay relevant for 80-plus years, and you argue that Freedom House is still relevant and is needed now as much as ever. Why?
0: Well, I think fundamentally, the problems we work on, and that were the problems that were faced by the founders of Freedom House, totalitarianism, fascism, anti-democratic behavior. Sadly, those problems have not gone away. So if anything, I think Freedom House is even more relevant uh, than ever, given what's happened in the world. You know, you you know, one of the most important things that Freedom House does, among others, and we can talk about the others, but the mo- one of the most important things is we are kind of the documenter of the state of democracy. And we've done, been doing that for now about 50 years. Uh, through our annual freedom in the world report, which is a very significant report that basically looks at the political rights and civil liberties of every country in the world and territory. So roughly uh, 200 or so, uh, different countries and territories. And the story that freedom in the world tells is a very disturbing story about how essentially rights and freedoms are in decline. Democracy is weakening authoritarianism, authoritarianism on the rise. And we need to warn our fellow citizens, our, our government that we need to take this problem more seriously. So the problem that Freedom House was created to help address sadly is still with us. I hope it doesn't mean that we are a failure, uh, but I do think it means that, um, that these are hard problems to address as we see in Putin's invasion of Ukraine, evil still exists. Uh, and we have to combat it, and we need to uh, help inspire citizens, governments to do more against this real problem in the world.
1: How do you see the current state of
0: democracy domestically in the United States? It's sort of a glass half full, glass half empty kind of situation. On a global scale, I feel good about American democracy. We are what we are still a free country. We group countries into three typologies, free, partly free and not free. And the United States is still a very free country. And there's a lot to be proud of with respect to the United States. Uh, We have a very robust media, robust protections of free speech, uh, a a strong judiciary, many things that are, are really to be proud of. And so I think we have to put this in context. We're not Russia or China, Turkey, some of these other countries that have really slipped and are falling in this kind of 16 years of democratic decline. I will say I am concerned about the trajectory of of US democracy. What we see essentially in our reports is that the erosion of democracies is happening all over the world. The, The erosion of democratic vitality is happening and it's probably happening, you know, faster, uh, in the United States, uh, than in, than in some other countries, so that's, that's a cause of deep concern. So I think. My point of view would be that you can't keep, you can't take democracy for granted, uh, and you have to fight for it all the time, but, 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 but we're concerned. And, uh, you know, I think I, I would say the thing that I'm most concerned would be what happened, you know, what's been commonly called to be the big lie, but, you know, the, the events that kind of led to the January 6th kind of mob attack on the Capitol that were still, you know, that the idea that. Many Americans, because of the actions of the president and others, you know, believe that the election was stolen, uh, you know, really to me has undermined a cardinal virtue of American democracy, which is an acceptance that the loser has of, 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 the loss and understand that, that, that our democratic system allows that person to come back in four years to try to fight again, uh, to gain power. But that that's, that's been lost. And I and i hope that it's a temporary blip but i but i but i'm worried about 2024 and 2028 you know what's happened we have to get back to the idea that uh politics is not existential that you have a opportunity to to rule for 4 years or to govern for 4 years i should say and then once that's over with uh you, you give up power peacefully
1: so one of the issues as i see it is that democracy is sort of like reputation, it's gained in inches per year, very accretively, but very slowly. But it's destroyed in, you know, feet per second. Um, what can, when you say we have to be alert, it's fine to be alert, but what are the concrete steps people can do to improve democracy, both in the United States and around the world?
0: Well, let me just say one thing that your question kind of prompts me to think about, which is the idea that there's no perfect democracy in the world. All of us can do, can do better. Some are doing better than others, but I think of like democracy as being kind of destination on a process, not necessarily something that you either ha- have or you don't have. I think that's kind of captured in the, in the scores that we have, right. You can be scored on a scale of zero to 100 and countries, you know, there tends to be not major movements, you know, on that scale, uh, sometimes as in Afghanistan where a struggling democracy was taken over by a medieval theocracy, uh, there was a rapid loss in Afghanistan scores, but that's tends to be the exception. Countries move like one point here, you know, two points there up, down, sometimes a three point move in, in a direction is a, is a lot for Freedom House score. So I, I very much like the idea that, that you, that you posited that democracy is a, you know, is measured in, 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 small increments and, but you gotta be careful. And I think, uh, I think there's not a magic bullet to this, but first of all, I think the first thing I would say is that people have to not take this for granted, right? You have, uh, countries, uh, that are, have been strong democracies like Venezuela would be an example or Hungary that have lost those freedoms. And so, and then again, going to the example, we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, Nazi Germany, if Nazi, you know, if, if, if Germany could move from being a very free country and alive, to democracy to one that's, you know, capable of genocide, that's of deep concern. So I think that the, uh, I think the first thing is shedding our sense of complacency. I really feel one of my biggest challenges at Freedom House is going to people say, ah, you're like overwrought, you know, something will never happen in the United States. Like what you're talking about. Well, I'm not so sure. And I don't want to take the risk with our democracy. So loss of complacency is, is the first thing. I think the other thing that I would emphasize, I mean, you know, there are lots of different specific policy prescriptions, but I think we have to all understand that we're in this together. And I think what, uh, our country is deeply polarized right now. And I think this is something you see around the world too, that, uh, that, that we actually share a lot of in common. There's more in common among Americans than we think. And I think we need to kind of recover that sense of patriotism and national unity that somehow has been lost. Uh, uh, you know, when you sit down with people, uh, from red America, blue America, they actually have a lot of the same concerns. And so I think that is a really important thing. The final thing I would say, and, uh, is I think, and I speaking, perhaps as a former journalist, I'm very struck about the degradation of the media, uh, ecosystem in our country. I'm not just talking about newspapers or TV stations, but I'm talking about how people get information, the, the rise of, you know, giant platform companies, the rise of social media. And I think what we've not yet really figured out the answer to is how to have a dialogue in this, uh, in this, in these mediums that is respectful and sober, as opposed to being driven to passions and extremes and also the spread of disinformation. I mean, bad actors can really put disinformation into circulation very easily uh, in the current media ecosystem. And we haven't yet figured out how to protect our first amendment and free speech rights while also making sure that these bad actors can't really undermine the foundations of democracy.
1: I would normally phrase the follow-up to that question as if you were king, but since you are the head of freedom, house, I think that would be a, (laughs) a poor choice of setups. So let me just say, if the democratic institutions of the United States accepted your advice, how would you encourage the constructive aspects of the information age and social media while discouraging the sociopathic ones?
0: It's a very complicated question and I, I I don't have a, I'm going to be honest. I don't have a full answer for you on that, but let me just, I think, I think the first thing is, is that private citizens have a responsibility to be more discriminating consumers of news. We have to train our children. We have to inoculate ourselves against propaganda and disinformation. Propaganda is not a new phenomenon. I mean, Hitler was the master propagandist of this, you know, 100 years ago. And honestly, if Hitler had uh, control of the internet back then, I would be very, very concerned. That's not, that's a comment that my former colleague, Sarah Bloomfield, the director of the museum, has frequently made. So uh, I, I do think that helping people become more discriminating consumers of information is vital. I also think that there's a lot more that we can do to basically shut down inauthentic behavior. What do I mean by that? I mean like Russian bots, or uh, or or bots just in general that are created by domestic by domestic organizations. It, it strikes me that a bot does not have a free speech right, uh, and so uh, I think there's a lot we can do to, to discourage inauthentic behavior without kind of you know, curbing free speech. And I think, you know, what's also going on right now is a serious look at the algorithms that, that the that the tech firms use to, uh, privilege certain types of speech over others. And I think, you know, f- requiring the tech firms to be more transparent about how those algorithms work, I think would be a very constructive thing as well. So I'm kind of gone from kind of very specific to, to kind of broader things. So.
1: You also in the, in the answer before that one mentioned the lack of acceptance by part of America as to election results and, um, the inability for us to talk to each other. Does many of our listeners are in the financial industry. Does the decline in agreement amongst the American public as to democracy, the acceptance of free, fair, open elections or the broad voting base, the relatively recent trend of political parties wanting to win, even if it damages democracy, um, pose a systemic risk to the economy as well as
0: to the social fabric? Well, what I would say is that one of my biggest, one of our biggest challenges at Freedom House is to convince the corporate and business communities in America but beyond that democracy matters we know for instance that democracies are more peaceful they don't declare war on each other uh we know uh, and there is growing body of evidence that there's more economic growth in democracies versus other forms of government and you see by the way what's happened since Putin's invasion of Ukraine. There's been a wholesale flight of capital from Russia. And I think the business community is really seeing a very concrete of how their interests are tied up in the existence of stable democracies that protect rule of law, that are transparent, that, you know, allow their investments to be treated fairly. So I think there is a very strong connection that we need to the draw between democracy and economic prosperity that we've not been forceful enough in making. And I think that's a really important thing uh, for us to do. It's interesting because, and you probably know this better than I do, John, you know, there's been a dramatic movement over the last number of years, ESG, right? Where companies are looking to take into better account environmental issues or sustainability in, in, in business decisions and that they're being rated on how well they respect those kinds of values or issues. And I, I would submit that we need to equally get companies interested in small D democracy, because it's, I think they're in the long-term, their well being is tied up in that. And it's a, it's a hard case to make because it's a little bit longer term. And there's always reasons why, for instance, it's more profitable, for, for instance, to invest in china in a certain way but i guarantee you their investments are not going to be safe long term in a country that does not respect the rule of law uh that as in china
1: so we've obviously been discussing serious topics and uh, in doing research for the session i read it noted because i couldn't read the all. Scores of articles you've published in journals like foreign affairs and the journal of democracy. You've contributed to programs at the American enterprise Institute, the Hoover Institute, and the American Academy of Berlin, but let me flip it around. What's the lighter side of micro problem? It's how do you relax?
0: Well, I'm a huge sports fan. Uh, I, uh, uh I have less time for it now, but there was a time where I you know, had season tickets to the Washington football team, the Washington wizards and, you know, partial plans with the nationals and the, uh, and the Orioles. And i cut way back on that, but I, but I love sports. I've always been a sports fanatic. Uh, I'm a very strong champion of, uh, the Washington sports teams, uh, by and large. Uh, although I prefer the Orioles to the nationals for fa- longtime family reasons that like my mother's Originally from Baltimore and I grew up, there was no nationals in Washington. So sports, I love reading and I, I, uh, I'm a voracious reader. Uh, I, uh, my day typically starts with, uh, uh, walking, uh, uh, for an hour around my neighborhood, listening to something on audible, which is a habit I picked up after I left the Washington post and was not quite as obsessed with the news every day. So what are you reading right now? I'm listening to a book called Istanbul Passage by Joseph Cannon, which she's a terrific spy novelist who was recommended by a good friend of mine. I love spy novels. And I'm also, I'm listening to that and I'm reading a book by Frank Fukuyama, who's a member of our board and a very distinguished person, personage in the democracy space, uh, who has a new book out about. Liberalism and kind of a defense of liberal virtues, and it's it's a it's a terrific book. It's only about 150 pages, but very well written and easy to read. Frank actually came by the bo- our board meeting last week and did a did a he's a he's a member of our board, and he kind of did a book talk, which was really interesting.
1: A couple other short Q and A things. Do you listen to
0: music, and if so, what type? Any favorite artists? I. I'm a huge, yeah, I, I, I listen to Spotify a lot. I'm, I'm kind of stuck in the punk rock new wave of 1977 to 1987. So anything during that period, I'm, I love Elvis Costello, The Clash. Uh, I also happen to really like Richard Thompson, uh, the British folk rocker. And I'm also kind of a fan of classical country music like, uh, Merle Haggard and George Jones.
1: Last question. If you could
0: magically whisper something into everyone's ear, what would you tell them? Be optimistic and be nice. I think that, I think the world, for all the problems we've talked about today, John, you know, I do feel optimistic about things. Uh, There was a great column actually in the Times by Brett Stevens about, all the reasons it is to be optimistic. So I, you know, things seem very hard right now, but we have to maintain that fundamental optimism. And one of the things that's really, one of my privileges at Freedom House is the ability to to meet directly human rights activists who are fighting for freedom all over the world. We just had a delegation of Cuban uh, human rights activists who were in town last week and we were taking them to meet policymakers and journalists, and it's just very inspiring that these people have not given up on the fight for freedom, even though their country is one of the least free countries in the world. So we're very, I try to be optimistic and that's what I tell people.
1: Thanks very much. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, Michael Abramowitz of Freedom House, one of the leading NGOs promoting democracy and human rights around the world. Um, And his end message of even as he confronts some of the uh, darker sides of humanity, to be optimistic, uh, be nice to other people and take inspiration from those who are doing that. Thanks so much, Mike. Thanks for having me, John. You've been listening to Spark Networks Outside In with John Lukomik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Conor Ohingasa, John Lukomik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.